0: If you will take your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1, today we will be again new study, a new series of messages, from the pastor's team anyway, from this uh, very interesting book, to say the least, that we find in the New Testament. New Testament being a key word, as the book of Hebrews speaks much of the New Testament in comparison to the Old Testament, or if you want to more accurately substitute the word testament with covenant, uh, that's basically what we're talking about here. So the book of Hebrews uh, is interesting in, if nothing else, it provides an incredible amount of understanding between the relationship of the Old Covenant that God had with his people. Uh, That basically was introduced through the people, uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, and the New Covenant, uh, which we find uh, basically the fulfillment of Christ's life uh, pertaining to all the promises uh, that were made to his people through the Old Covenant, the Old Promises, uh, some of which have been fulfilled through his life, some of them we continue to wait on. And that is the wonderful thing about this, this book as we will study through it, uh, that it will give us insights not only to how Christ has accomplished many things that were promised aforetime, but how we look forward to the way he will continue to fulfill the promises uh, which we, as God's people, will enjoy uh, with him. Today's message, and to some degree, a title that could be given to the whole study, is a pursuit of something better. In the book of Hebrews, we'll find a presentation of something better regularly. And that's something that we can relate to in life because we spend much of our lives looking for something better. We live in a commercialistic, consumeristic world that is eager to uh, help us out with that. We've even gone to the extremes where commercials don't even want you to seek something better. They're just simply means of entertainment to kind of subliminally get you to pursue something better, the new and improved, uh, the new design, uh, the new benefits. Uh, You think about pretty much every part of your life in this fallen world has room for improvement, right? So therefore, we spend much of our time Not merely enjoying the conveniences and the blessings that we have in the world in which we live today, whether it be technology or whether it be healthcare or whether it be just simply social interaction, but also in a pursuit for the next thing. Apple can't put out a phone early enough to replace the new and improved version that if you were to compare, if you have an iPhone and you compare it to the one you had just three or four years ago, You chuckle to yourself to imagine, how in the world did I ever get away with my life with that piece of ancient machinery? (laughs) Much less for those of us who, uh, Richard, appreciated the fact that I no longer carry a a flip phone. um, Which, I'm glad I was able to, you know, rise in my stature that way. But it was always something better. Faster. You think about work. We, we're looking for a better way to do our jobs. We're looking for better efficiency. We're looking for better productivity. We look at the government. We look for better leadership. We look for better laws. We look for better enforcement. We look at medical field. We look for better cures. We look for better treatments. We look for better you know, analysis of the situations. Our lives are consumed with wanting to get better. Sadly, in the midst of all of this strife and struggle to find something better, people spend little time, if any, pursuing a better relationship with God. Of all the things that we find important in this world and in our lives, the most important thing often goes unpursued. And not just merely a relationship with God, but more importantly, a preparation to face Him one day. Now, some have concluded already that there is no God, so therefore, no efforts required. They can spend their life consuming it, all of their energies in meeting all of their own personal self interest and in their needs, and their wants, and their desires. Since God does not exist in their minds, they're free to live with no accountability to anyone else except for themselves, and therefore not be concerned in one little way about how they're going to face this God that they refuse to believe in. Some, since the vacuum inside of their soul, they realize something is missing. But they reduce or they minimize their idea of who God is or what God may be to match their own standard of righteousness. And therefore, only minimal effort is required to have a relationship or prepare to meet such a being. And yes, then there are those who grow up in religious circles. Whether it be in a temple, church, or a mosque. And they embrace the list of laws and requirements to substantiate their claim of being accepted before this God, whom they look forward to meeting because, after all, they've accomplished the task. They've checked all the boxes off. They've accumulated all the wealth of wisdom and knowledge of this God, and they have performed all of his duties flawlessly. Wherever you may find yourself in that pursuit to face God and to have a relationship with him, I trust that you are seeking or have sought the better way. The humbling reality is that our pursuit of God is dependent on God initiating the search. If we think that somehow within our own beings we have come up with this desire to know something beyond ourselves, we deceive ourselves and probably are pursuing a figment of our own imagination. However, the God of the Bible makes it very clear, and particularly in the passage that we're looking at today, that he has initiated that search for our better. And he's done so by speaking. If you will, follow along as I read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. God, I'm sorry, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. God, we ask you now not to simply bless your word, which you have already done as you have inspired it by your Holy Spirit. But Father, I come before you confessing that I believe that there are some passages that make it very easy for us to see Jesus Christ. And this would be one of those passages simply because it is so clear in the language, in the phrases, in the sentences that are used. But Father, I recognize today before you and before this people that apart from the Holy Spirit, we can understand nothing. And for that reason, I come before you now asking that you would open our eyes and cause us to understand what you are speaking to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to the point of obedience and understanding as only your spirit can do within our hearts. And may it change us today. Help us to seek something better than what we can design ourselves or what someone else can fashion. But Father, help us to pursue the one who is ultimately, eternally better than anything, and that is Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, now that you would speak to us as we prayed, as we have sung, as we have fellowshiped together, as we have given, and now as we receive your word. Help us, Lord, and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Long ago, in the English Standard Version and other, trans- other modern translations, you will have verse 1 beginning that way. Some of the older translations will be begin with God. But the original text is suggesting that because of the placement of long ago at many times in many ways, that is the emphasis that while we can certainly understand that it is important that God did speak, the point that the writer of Hebrews here is making is that he spoke previously at many, at many times in many ways. Now the writer of Hebrews, this study will in no means bring you to a closer understanding as to who he was. Uh, and as one commentator at least Mentioned that it may be a good thing that we understand not who simply pinned it down as a human because that way we can present all of the focus and attention upon the subject matter, that being the person of Jesus Christ. But the writer of Hebrews mentions that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, long ago is simply a word translated uh, from a Greek word that means old, Not old in the sense of merely time has passed, but in the sense that it is old and that it has fulfilled its purpose. Now, as a man, I have many articles of clothing that my wife can attest to that I have been wearing way too long. (laughs) I wear t-shirts that I've had since we were first married that Whitney may remember me wearing. I'm not sure since she was around in my youth group that time. But there is a time when you look at your clothing and you have to say, you know what, the time has come. Those clothes are old. Now, some of you have a comparison with what everybody else is wearing as the fact that it is now old. I, on the other hand, has to have some holes in it that were not there when I purchased them. Has some maybe fading in the color that wasn't there when I first bought them. But there's a time in which I understand something has, a time has come, and, and there was a previous usage for that piece of clothing that no longer, it has, it has served its purpose, so to speak. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, long ago, where it has now come to provide something different. Or more specifically now, in relation to our study, something better. Something better than the prophets. Not that the quality of the message was wrong because let's make it very clear that when God speaks, God speaks. It's not as if God finally sat on his throne and said, you know what, I finally got this message thing down and after some practice with all those Old Testament prophets, I really have something to say now. No, it wasn't as though the quality had changed. It was now that the message was going to be different. It was going to be rather than the time had come for the message to be preached. This message that 1 Peter chapter 1 reminds us that there were those prophets of old who as they preached the message... Uh, concerning our salvation, they inquired what the person or the time of the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So this was not a, necessarily a different message. But now this way of speaking that God did at many times and in many ways, speaking to our fathers by the prophets, has now spoken to us by his Son. That God has spoken is the ground of all religion. One commentator spoke. And if you carefully analyze each religion of the world and inquire of them what their God says, that should in turn provide for you why they live the way they do, right? So what God has said in his word truly is the ground of our religion. And the fact that he spoke in different parts, that is, that he spoke progressively, he would provide one prophet a message here that may not be providing a complete understanding of what he was doing. Here would be another prophet that he would give another message to that would make sense in the context in which it was given, but in the overall picture of things may not be able to fit. God spoke in different parts. He spoke in many different times in different ways or manners not ways in the sense that somebody saw a vision or somebody had a dream or somebody saw a finger writing on a wall but in the sense that he spoke to different prophets in different contexts and that the time had come or at the end of these days god now speaks to us through his son jesus christ So let's make it very clear in understanding that as we begin this pursuit of something better, as we begin our pursuit of this better covenant or this better promise or this better testament, that we understand that it comes through the same way God has always spoken, through his prophets. But now he is speaking to us through his prophet, his son, Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ and somebody else that you may see on TV. Or Jesus Christ and a book that you may read that inspires you to think big dreams. But he is speaking to us through his son. That is why we sing, or even in today's case, Amy plays through, Speak to us, Lord. And it's in the context of his word. As believers in Jesus Christ, we do not gather together to accumulate all of our revelatory thoughts or all of our dreams or all of our inspirations. No, we come and gather ourselves together around the Word of God. Because that is the way God has always spoken and that is the way God has spoken to us through Christ and that is what we have that is eternally ours. The revelation that God has spoken to us. Now who is this that he has spoken to us through? Jesus, his son. Who the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 2 to say, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now let's unpack this for just a moment so that we can understand who this Jesus is. Show us Christ through the preaching of your word. Here we go. Here is Christ. Jesus is God, simply put. And we see that because he is the radiance of the glory of God. The term radiance just simply means to send forth light. You'll see this depicted throughout the centuries, whether it be of Christ or within Christianity or in other religions, of this idea of shining forth. And you'll see images that have been painted or carved or engraved in which the image that is bearing divinity will have these rays of light coming from their bodies. And that comes from the idea spoken of here of the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ in his eternal light breaks through all the darkness that keeps someone in spiritual ignorance. That is, every resistance exerted by sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ reveals to us the radiance of the glory of God now if you're one of those in those categories that I mentioned earlier who really isn't pursuing a relationship with God or is concerned about meeting him one day then the fact that he bears the image of God and he radiates the glory of God in a face no big deal it's just a picture It's just a thought, maybe inspiring to some degree, but no big deal. But if you truly understand the hunger of the empty human soul in its sinfulness, you recognize that the radiance of God's glory is something that you could never behold on your own. Something that you could never imagine. And there were often times that even Jesus' closest disciples would ask, show us the Father. Yet, there his face was that Paul said reflected his glory. John MacArthur says, Christ is to God as the warm brilliance of light is to the sun. When you see The radiance of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It warms your spirit and your soul as it does walking out on a cold winter's morning only to have the sun's radiance touch your body and you sense a a, a warmth that you didn't have while the sun was away behind the cloud or on the other side of the earth. But that is who Jesus Christ is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus even said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is who God is speaking through to us today. The one who bears and gives the radiance of his glory. But not only is Jesus God in the fact that he radiates the glory of God, but he's the exact imprint of God's nature. The word imprint comes from is the same root that we get our word character. And it literally means uh, to make an impression. In the Roman in, in the Roman government 2000 years ago, they would seal a letter with wax. And they would place a seal on that wax and emboss it so that, number one, you understood it carried the authority of whomever was sending the letter. And it made it very clear that only certain people were allowed to break that seal. But what that seal did is it impressed in the wax the very shape and image of that bearer's seal. Their image. Their icon, if you will. And Jesus Christ takes a God that we cannot see, who is invisible, who reigns omnipotently beyond our sight and beyond many of our senses. And Jesus Christ is that seal so that we can physically see the one who is unseeable. That is the reason why He came in flesh the writer of Hebrews has just a little bit to say about that and I look forward to hearing about that as we continue our series. But he is the exact imprint of God's nature. That is his substance. The foundation or the essence of who God is. That's who Jesus Christ is. The invisible God has been made visible as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything. Colossians, he goes on to, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. While there is a separation of persons within the Godhead, there is no separation between him being God. You say, preacher, can you explain that? And I will say, give me a hundred years a hundred years, I'll be glad to sit down and explain to you how all of that works. Perhaps you'll probably be distracted by other things in glory. But that is the miracle of who Jesus Christ is in the flesh. He is man, yet he is God. The exact imprint. John Piper says in his book, Desiring God, from these texts, we learn that through all eternity, God the Father has beheld the image of his own glory perfectly represented in the person of the Son. Therefore, one of the best ways to think about God's infinite enjoyment of his own glory is to think of it as the delight he has in his Son, who is the perfect reflection of that glory. And if God, Piper will argue, enjoys his glory, then we can find nothing greater for us to enjoy ourselves. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And God's revelation of who Jesus Christ is confronts our culture by exalting Christ's creation of and ownership of and intervention in all things as we continue on in chapter 2. First of all, we see that Jesus Christ, who is God, is the heir of all things. The writer of Hebrews says that very thing. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, which means he's just simply the owner. He's the one, not only the one who inheriting it, but the one who it belongs to all along. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, again, help us out here, in the sense that the, Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. Romans eleven thirty six adds, for him and through him and to him are all things. He is the heir of all things. In other words, it doesn't belong to some social group. It doesn't belong to any particular government. It doesn't belong to any one person, regardless of how large their account may be. But the fact that Jesus Christ is the heir of it all, we see beautifully pictured, I believe, in Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bible, turn over there. If you don't, just follow along. A familiar passage of Scripture, a vision of what John saw going on in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. This picture is God the Father sitting on his throne in heaven and in his right hand there is a scroll which as we study through the book of Revelation we'll see is in essence the title deed to all things. So John continues in verse 2 and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Remember, when something was sealed up and it had that stamp, not only did it designate whose authority it was being sent by, but it has also made it very clear that unless you had the proper uh, authority yourself, you could not open it up. So the angel says, who's worthy to, to open this title deed? And he says in verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And John says he began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Can you imagine? There's no one here to give us order over the things of all things. There's no one here to, to, to provide communication or to reveal what all things are concerning us. No one to explain it to us. There's no one to fulfill it all. And one of the elders in verse 5 said to John, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing. As if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took, out the right, took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. That's the one who is the heir of all things. That is the one who is able to take the book out of the right hand of the Father. And open and read and fulfill. Why? Because he was the lamb that was slain. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But not only is he heir of all things, the one to whom all of what has happened in the past, what is happening now, and what will happen in the future is under his authority, but it flows from the fact that he is the creator of all things. And regardless of what the secular realm or even what those in the religious realm, including the Pope, who says somehow the evolution and faith can coexist. I'm sorry. Jesus created it all. He created it intentionally, with purpose, with design. He doesn't need millions of years to somehow do what he spoke with his words. And when you look at the culture in which we live today, it is saturated. No wonder we live in such an atheistic or at best an agnostic culture in the sense that they have eroded from any sense of history the reality of a creator. If you can somehow get rid of the creator, you need not be accountable to anyone else. If you can get rid of the creator, you can make the design of whatever and whomever you want to be whatever you want. I have to be careful here because I'm speaking about public life and exposing myself, but I was recently at a leadership conference and the whole presentation given as to how we can incorporate a measure of trust within the workforce in which I work, was based upon an evolutionary model where we're all animals, we all recognize how we relate to one another, who does this and who does that, and as soon as we acknowledge all of this, then we can work productively to help each other out. I'm sorry, I'm offended by that. Is my offense going to be covered by the news? Probably not. But if I'm offended by that, how much more is the one who spoke it all into existence offended? How does a world in which we live that practically has perpetrated every aspect of our life by this evolutionary thought, how much is that offensive to our God? We see, through that sort of thinking, we can justify any type of action. If we're merely animals, then we can reduce everything down to just a few biological chemical imbalances. If we are simply products of some long-haul process that no one has ever been able to see any evidence of, but yet we can explain it, we can justify anything that pursues the goal of survival. But if we're seeking something better, we need to understand that God has spoken to us through someone who has created it all. And not only is He the heir of all things, the creator of all things, but He's the sustainer of all things. He's the one who holds it together. And how is it that He holds it together? Interestingly enough, by the word of His power, the same way He brought it into creation. If you're willing as a Christian to go out on a limb and think that, well, somehow maybe he could have used evolution to create everything, then you're somehow going to have to explain how he, by evolutionary means or some pseudoscience, how he sustains everything. Because both come as a result of his spoken word. Now I know we're risking a lot of credibility with people who know a lot, And people who have a lot of letters behind their names and have written a lot of long books that you wouldn't be able to understand because they're so dry and dusty. But that does not change the truth. And when the church loses grasp of who Jesus Christ is as the heir of all things, the creator of all things, and the sustainer of all things, you've lost the better. You've lost the better. You're settling for emptiness. For human reasoning. Not long ago, our Daily Bread included an article from USA Today that the headline read, Physicists find the missing piece of in a universal puzzle. Now you may not have heard of this because the way I pronounce it probably isn't the way it's supposed to be pronounced. So I'll go ahead and grant you the the lack of connection here. But the tau neutrino, if anybody knows what it is, just see me after the service. I would love to, to know how you found that out. But anyway, the tau neutrino, an incredibly tiny particle, was the last theorized member of the family of particles that make up the universe. It has now been proven to exist. Philip Shu of the American Institute of Physics said, It's like finding the Z in the alphabet of fundamental particles. This study doesn't save lives or fill stomachs, but it does investigate the most fundamental structures out of which everything, including ourselves, is made. Well, congratulations. That's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ knew about that particle before it ever existed. Can you imagine, well, actually, we should be able to imagine what it would be like to uncover the true meaning of the universe. I can just imagine a bunch of scientists sitting around a room, and uh, you know, maybe it was on a, a little slide under the microscope, or maybe they were looking at a, you know, a, a large telescope, or, or however they found this little microparticle that they were finally, it was finally going to be the, the Z of their whole scientific alphabet. How giddy they must have been to think that they finally found the smallest particle they ever theorized to even exist. How much more so should we be overwhelmed that a holy, righteous God who is more infinite and eternal than we can possibly imagine would take the time to open my eyes to see His glory I'm ashamed I should be overwhelmed every moment of my life to know that within God's word because Jesus Christ has spoke to us through His Son that I know Him I know the one who created it I know the one who created me I know the one who has ordered it all He has spoken to me through His word But all I can be concerned about is there any bread to make a sandwich with today? Or, thanks for leaving the car with no fuel in it. I have to go and waste more time in filling it up. Or, what do you mean you're out of that item? I've got to wait two days to have it pre-ordered. What? I know the one who owns it all, the one who created it all, and if for one moment he ceased to think about it, it would all explode and cease to exist. But he spoke to me. And he's spoken to you. That's better. That's better. I think it's better because we find out that this son through whom Jesus spoke to us through after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high <laughs> see it would be one thing if this great magnificent creator sustainer God Allow me to see him. But yet not let me know him. And know his love for me. But this Jesus who spoke to us has also purified us. That term purification just simply means it could be cleansing like someone who had leprosy being cleansed of their infirmity. But here it's speaking about the cleansing from the guilt of sin. And the writer of Hebrews has much to say about that. It also suggests, as James says in chapter 4, verse 8, to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So it carries along with it the idea that not only is God purifying, but he's purifying in in regards as we are repenting. The word is is indicating in the voice that's being used of the action being upon himself or for his own interest. So, in other words, Christ did so by himself, acting upon himself, offering himself as the sacrifice for sin. Nothing on our part. Christ was acting on his own, Christ was doing it himself when he purified us. It wasn't because he saw me trying to do better. Or saw me going to church 94% of the time last year. Or saw me reading my Bible once a week. Or saw me make an effort to help somebody who is in need. But it was because he acted upon himself that purification of sin is being made. Also in the sense in that it was a one-time act. Jesus Christ didn't purify sin's through many, many actions. But once and for all. And this is where our blessed hope rests. And the fact that Christ has purified us. Listen to what Paul tells Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Jesus' work of purification was not only done by himself, but it was done for himself. While we are the recipients, Jesus Christ didn't do something for us, but he did something for us in doing something for himself. Bringing glory to Him. That is why we worship Him. That's not why we celebrate us. We celebrate Him. Because He's the one who purifies. He's the one who cleanses. He is the one who gives us a hope for which we look forward to. But not only did He make purification, but He also, He sat down as we go through the book of Hebrews over the next several months maybe a year or two I don't know we'll be reminded of what the book of Leviticus describes for the priesthood in their offerings and sacrifices that were made annual basis weekly basis daily basis all the time these poor men as it related to their ministry never had a chance to sit down why was that? (laughs) there was always need to have sins covered when Jesus Christ purifies he sits down and he is seated at the right hand of the father the right hand of the majesty on high. Because it's finished. That's better. Being part of a ministry and being part of a pastoral staff, I'm glad that I'm not working myself silly with the rest of these men, trying to make sure we get everything complete because that job will never, ever get done, right? I'm glad we're living in a day that's better. That's not to suggest that they were being saved in the Old Testament because of all of these sacrifices, but all these sacrifices were being made pointing to the one ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make. That's the reason why we know that this book was probably written during a time before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the AD 70, because it was so practical and real to these people's lives that the writer of Hebrews was saying, don't go back. There's something better. Jesus Christ, the one through whom God is now speaking to us, has purified us from our sin and has sat down. It is finished. Where are you today? Are you sadly here today as one who, not really concerned about how you're going to meet up with Jesus one day? Because you don't believe you are. You've convinced yourself that there is no God. You've convinced yourself that there is no judgment. You've convinced yourself that there's no accountability. So therefore, you're going to live the way you want to, the way it's best to you. You're not going to hurt anybody as much as you can help, but you know it's all about you. But yet, Jesus Christ is speaking to you today through the Word. Will you pursue something better? Are you here somewhat spiritual? Maybe you've spent all your life in church. Maybe you've pursued somewhat of a religious lifestyle so that no one would embarrass you or so you wouldn't embarrass anybody else. Maybe you've tried to do enough things because in the back of your mind you're thinking, well, you know what, in case there is somebody to be accountable to, I at least want to have something that I can lay on the scale so that it can kind of look good. I mean, I don't want to be an oppressive person. I don't want to be somebody people looks at and being hatred. I don't want to be like Adolf Hitler or anything. But at the same time, it's just so much other stuff. I I, I don't know if that's true or not. It's sort of like Pascal was credited for saying that if God is true or if Christianity is true, then at best, you will have pursued a life according to the scriptures, that will provide you eternal life. But the worst that could happen to you if you believe that Christianity is true, if it's not, is that you've lived a good life, you've been able to share with other people, and you've been able to at least make something beneficial of your life, at worst. However, if you go through life believing that Christianity is not true, the best that you're going to have it's a turmoil and strife that lives from living and eat whoever's in front of you sort of life to get ahead. And the worst that will happen to you is you'll spend forever regretting your rejection of Christ. So where do you fall? Perhaps you're like the self-righteous ones. You just don't understand. I really haven't done all that bad anywhere in my life. As a matter of fact, when I look at it, I think I've been pretty good. I've never cheated on my wife or my husband. I've never stolen anything of any great value. I've even thought highly of, of people who were religious. I, I've always appreciated Billy Graham and I've always thought he was doing such a great work. And when I looked at Sister Teresa, I've always thought of oh, what a difference she's making in the world. And I've always looked poorly towards people who were hateful and, and, and criminal. I've followed the golden rule. I've tried to treat people the way people, I would want people to treat me. I've even gone to church. I've got a Bible. I read it. From time to time, I've even praying. And you're no more better off than those who were making a sacrifice every day. Every day. Thinking that that would somehow give them good standing before God. Now the only thing that's going to help prepare you to face Jesus Christ one day is for you to humble yourself. And through repentant faith, that meaning acknowledging not only that you are a sinner and that you were born into this world an enemy of God, turning your back on that and pursuing by faith the fact that Jesus Christ has purified you from your sins through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the message of Hebrews. Whether or not we spend a lot of time focusing on this statement, I would like to at least give you this one final thought that I hope will carry you from this message through maybe the rest of the study. And that is our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ. Unwavering faith. Not partial faith. Not mm, sort of faith. But our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus Christ. Not in our own efforts. Not in our pursuits. But that type of faith will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ. You see, the book of Hebrews is a study of how to prepare for a better meeting with God. Are you prepared today? He's spoken. His word is clear as the Holy Spirit gives clarity. Is your faith unwavering is it in Jesus Christ and his work of purification is it enabling you to endure whatever may come your way until you receive the eternal reward that's in Christ I trust that it is let's pray